one of the themes that Lumpur Cha and all the other forest ajans emphasized over and over again in their teachings is the development of samana sanya, the perception of being a samana. One useful reflection that we can use to consider when we're thinking about the qualities of a samana and what it is to be a samana is the Yawada Patimoka, the teaching that we bring up at this time, coming close to Marga Puja when we chant the translated version. It's a very succinct summary of um, our path of practice and what a samana, what qualities a samana is developing and even represents in a Buddhist culture, a samana actually sits in people's minds. It's an ideal, an image that many people have, even though they may never have ordained themselves. <clears throat> they have a sense of what a samana is like and what they stand for. So as we chant, you know, one of the qualities of a samana is the renunciant somebody who's left the home life, left the world to pursue the spiritual practice for the ending of suffering, for liberation of the mind from attachments, from defilements. And the Buddha said he wanted us to be the his heirs in Dhamma and not his air in material things. And the quality of a samana is one who is a renunciant, so going against the worldly stream of desire for accumulating more wealth, more experiences, more things, or the modern word, more stuff. Renunciation is very much at the heart of our lifestyle. It's implicit in the precepts that we keep, the Patimoka Sila, another part of Yawada Patimoka, in teaching we are one who lives restrained in the Patimoka Sila. We don't go around looking for more money or wealth or things, asking people, bothering people. We practice renunciation, letting go of that desire or the attachment that we formerly may have been encouraging in our lay life, bringing up the opposite of sense of renunciation, contentment, fewness of wishes. 
so that we are at ease in ourselves and we're not a burden on society. So when people see, particularly forest monks, monks in the lineage of Lumpur Cha, they immediately have a sense that these are monks who don't use money, not seeking to bother the lay community to get things, want things from them. So it brings up joy when people see people going forth as summoners, taking novice, papajal, bhikkhu, upasampada. Lay people attending those ceremonies often have a lot of joy because it symbolizes this renunciation, just as the Buddha leaving the palace shaved off his top knot, gave away his fancy embroidered silk clothing, took on simple cloth robes of a samana. We've done that. And when lay people see a ceremony, often they find it very inspiring, even if they're not able to do it themselves. They're inspired that there is that thought in the world that people have to renounce the accumulation of wealth and go forth. Who knows what happens to that samana, how long they stay in the robes and practice, what they attain. That's all to be revealed over time. But just that initial intention to go forth is already very powerful, wholesome karma and it inspires others as well. Sometimes even to the point where one person sees another ordaining and they make a wish. I too wish to ordain one day. Just as in the time of the Buddha, practitioners saw the Buddha and his leading disciples, members of his entourage, the 80 Asitisavakas, each with their own particular abilities, skills and attainments. And people would see them and make an aspiration, may I one day become a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni, foremost in wisdom or in psychic powers or in putting effort into the practice or being one who is easy to teach or being one who is, has gratitude and so on. All the different qualities of the foremost disciples of the Buddha, sometimes people just see them and make a, an aspiration. Something we shouldn't overlook as seminars, those who have gone forth, put on the robes, however much difficulty we feel we have in the practice, our own personal karma, the different mental states arising, the obstacles. Just the fact that we've shaven our head, put on the robes, renounced the worldly life is already very inspiring to others. <clears throat> and it's not something we should overlook. It's a very powerful karmic force in our life. The world needs more, more renunciants. People who value the spiritual life and see 
the value of going forth, putting effort into this kind of lifestyle. Especially as the world population increases <coughs> and we use the resources of the world more heavily, we get into conflicts over the resources, the land, ideology and so on. We need more renunciants to remind people of that side to human existence, the higher happiness and the pursuit of the higher happiness and the putting into perspective you know, the limitations of material gain, material wealth, because it's no guarantee of happiness and it actually brings us a lot of suffering when we have no mindfulness and wisdom. The other aspect of the samana is the harmlessness. Again, very much deeply ingrained in people's image of a samana. It's one who's harmless, non-violent, doesn't insult or harm others physically or verbally. Even when a samana may have suffering themselves, different mental states arising, they're one who has the patience and the endurance not to give in to their desire to seek revenge, harm others, exploit others. That's a samana, one who is patient. Even occasionally, people in the world exploit that and they take advantage of samanas and shout abuse at them or be rude to them because they know they won't fight back. In the most extreme case, maybe even physically harm them. People who are deluded may do that. But more often than not, it's a positive experience and again, a positive contribution to society. The reminder that people can live with sila and with the Brahma-viharas as a guiding principle in their life. They can have metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, qualities of a Brahma. And they often say one who is practicing as a samana, even if they haven't yet attained that which is difficult to attain, the Magapala Nibbana, they may be already living as a Brahma, meaning they just practice the Brahma-viharas as a normal thing for them. It's normal for them to have metta, compassion, mudita and upeka on a daily basis in the way they think, their attitude. These are the qualities we're cultivating as a samana. They go hand in hand with renunciation and learning to be content with little and content with spiritual rewards rather than material rewards. The practice of Brahma-vihara dhammas supports that and is part of that. And when we practice as samanas, we are consciously sensitive to the suffering and the burdens of other people. So we try not to increase other people's suffering or burdens. So we don't seek to bother others or ask a lot from others. And we try to give them 
support and guidance in their spiritual life, particularly the lay people we come across in the course of our practice, you know, people who offer us food and support, assistance in different ways, or lay people who come seeking advice or teachings. We develop the Brahma-viharas responding with metta or karuna. Again, this is a vital quality that society as a whole needs to be reminded of because it's very easy for people in society to lose track of their life, in their lives, of these spiritual qualities. With the way our society is based on capitalism and the corporate mentality to do with business, that even comes into areas of life, say things like education or healthcare. Now there's the business mentality, so even doctors, teachers, people who traditionally may be seen as more those who are sacrificing for the good of the society and the country, often now are seen more in terms of parts of a corporation, and units, human units, and their output is measured, their bu the budget is measured, their, their costs and their output and production is measured even in these areas which traditionally they didn't didn't do we didn't do that in the past so to counter that we also need the spiritual side of society the brahmaviharas in reminding people that well you can do a job of work and still practice compassion you can still be friendly to strangers you can still help people you don't know in different situations and so on. A samana is, again, it provides an image of that in society, represents the Brahma-viharas in practice. In small ways and bigger ways, we can teach Dhamma, teach meditation, or simply go about our business but with an attitude of compassion and kindness. If people come in contact with us or even animals, creatures, we can display that, our kindness and compassion. We can be patient with the suffering of other people, <coughs> maybe the inappropriate behavior of others. We deal with it with compassion rather than judging them or seeking to harm them or seeking revenge on them. And these qualities, the qualities of a samana underlie our life and they're nourishing qualities for one intent on developing meditation, whether it's samadhi or panya. We need a foundation of renunciation and the brahmaviharas. They go hand in hand. If we're talking about samadhi, well, the one-pointedness of samadhi is the, the renunciation of sense objects, desire for sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, which shake the mind, obsess the mind. And we're consciously renouncing 
our desire for sense objects and focusing the mind on one object, our meditation object, when we develop samatha meditation. As pity and sukha arises as we develop a meditation object, well naturally thoughts of anger and hatred and revenge fade away. When samadhi arises, it's impossible at that moment for anger or hatred to be in the mind. Piti and sukha remove that. Often in the beginning of our practice we get moments of piti and sukha, maybe not sustained piti and sukha because our samadhi is not yet sustained. But just seeing other people do good acts or recollecting one's own good actions can bring pity and sukha up. Hearing Dhamma, reading Dhamma can bring pity and sukha. Seeing other practitioners doing good things and practicing well can bring up pity and sukha and so on. So we have moments where pity and sukha arise and any negativity fades. But it's not yet sustained when it's just based on these short moments, moments of faith, inspiration and so on. We have to develop our meditation over time and it actually becomes a skill as we learn to develop mindfulness on an object. It becomes a skill to calm the mind and experience the more refined states of pity and sukha. And then ultimately the one-pointedness where the mind is not swayed by sense objects. There's a real renunciation, a willingness to give away, give up mental states based on sensuality. That can be subtle or gross. It's not just fantasies, say sexual fantasies and desiring all kinds of pleasant things, just all kinds of thoughts about the future or the past. A lot of more random distracted thoughts are still based in sensuality. Our ideals, our ambitions can be based around sensuality. So it's learning to give up a whole wealth, a whole variety of concepts, ideas, mental states being willing to settle the mind down, to be content with little, as in content with little in terms of mental objects or mental states or thoughts, not being content to think a little, just think of one meditation object. You might call this an inner renunciation, you know, the renunciation of all the mental experience that we get fascinated by, caught up in. Renunciation of anger and ill will as well. Being willing to forgive or willing to let go and accept things that we maybe don't like to do with other people or ourselves or the world around us. Ajahn Chah used to sometimes use the same word, dana. If you have an angry thought, is a give it away as dana. Not meaning go and take it out on someone, but just give it away give it up from the mind. It's a form of dana. You just let it go from the mind, just as if you give someone else a gift. You have no more attachment, no more 
sense of self invested in that mood. You just give it away, let it go. When we're meditating, we're learning to do that, really to give up attachment moment by moment by placing mindfulness on an object or through contemplation, contemplating the three characteristics, contemplating impermanence, contemplating dukkha, not self. You're giving up attachment to different confusing and distracting mental states. Particularly mental states that habitually bother us. The endless worry and anxiety about the future and about different personal issues like health and well-being. Habitual thoughts of negativity, negativity towards other people, towards situations we don't like. Actually sit down and consciously give, give them up, renounce them. Teach the mind to be more content with a simple meditation object or a simple reflection on impermanence or on emptiness, not self. To be content enough just to be with the perception of emptiness without self, without self-identification. So these are the, some of the qualities of a samana, the renunciation, the kindness and the compassion, the training the mind in mindfulness and one-pointedness and then developing wisdom, contemplation. And these all make up the samana and the one who is dedicated to that practice. Lumpur Chow used to say, we put the robes on and we shave our heads. Well, we become samanas on a conventional level, but we're not yet samanas inside, internally. Occasionally, even he would point out to the monks that some of the laity who had practiced for many, many years really dedicated themselves to the practice, even though they're still lay, lay practitioners, maybe keeping eight precepts periodically or even on a daily basis. Some of those lay practitioners were already as if samanas inside their mind. Whereas some of the newer monks may be not yet samanas. The mind is still very worldly, seeking worldly things, thinking about worldly matters. Obviously it takes time sometimes for the mind to settle down. When we come into the robes we're still like a wet log. It's pulled out of the water, you can't set fire to it yet, it has to sit on the bank and dry out before you can use it for firewood. So we're all drying out. And Lumpur Chao pointed out some of those lay supporters who have been practicing for 30, 40 years, maybe they've already dried out inside and they're already attaining samadhi or insight. It's possible. The mind inside is not always correlating to the mind outside or the external way somebody looks. Somebody could be mentally on the level of a samana, a monk, a nun, although externally they seem to still be in the family, wearing lay clothes, maybe with a job or with various duties still to perform. Similarly, 
a samana, a monk, can still be a lay person inside. Our mind goes up and down from these different levels. Maybe overall we're keeping the Patimokha Sila, the Vinaya, dedicated to the meditation practice. So overall we're a samana. But we'll still have moments when the mind slips, slips back into the way of a lay person. A bit like a manual vehicle, it slips out of gear. You're going along smoothly and it just slips back and you suddenly hear the engine grinding. Monks can be like that. Sometimes it's going very smoothly and even they'll practice and then the conditions are right and a strong mental state comes up. Strong greed, strong anger, strong lust. And we're back to being a lay person. A lay person in monk's robes. Our job is to gradually weed out the causes for that kind of slip. So there's an evenness to our practice, both externally and internally, we maintain the sense of being a seminar. It affects everything we do. You know, we're, we're seminars 24-7, so it's not like it's something you, when you go back to your kuti, then you start behaving like a lay person or something like that. We're training all the time and develop an attitude to see this monastic form as a training. Everything is part of the training. You even, even have guidelines how we go to the toilet. You know, samana, if we're outdoors, we squat down. We don't go naked outdoors. You know, these are rules we have. The way we go to the toilet, the way we eat the way we sleep. Many rules and guidelines over the most basic normal functions of a human being we're learning to train like a seminar. Someone was saying the other day, a lay person, they're saying how they noticed once they've started practicing meditation for a few years how when they sleep lying on their side in the lion's posture as the Buddha described, the right hand supporting the head and lying on the right side. When they sleep like that, they sleep very peacefully. Their mind is wholesome and they don't have many dreams or negative thoughts when they sleep. If they sleep lying on their back in a more unrestrained way, they tend to have a lot of bad dreams and don't feel so good. Even very ordinary Things like the posture we sleep in, the way we go to the toilet, reflect our state of mind, and they're part of the training. The way we eat, you know, we eat in one vessel, mindfully noticing the, the way we eat. You know, we don't eat scattering food around or making a loud noise. You have sakya rules guiding this. Even novices have to keep sakya rules. We eat evenly, taking even mouthfuls or spoonfuls of food. We don't just focus on the food we like and ignore the rest. When we take our food, Lumpur Chai said you used to be able to see who's practicing well when you take the food. So if you're taking from a line of, uh, on the tables, you know, whether you grab at the food 
you take large portions, whether you're considerate of the people behind you in the line. And just because we're more senior to someone doesn't mean to say we can't respect them as a fellow practitioner and consider their needs. So it's okay for senior monks to hand things to junior monks or help them or think of them when you're taking food. Junior monks can help novices, novices can help anagarikas. We even help the lay people. We consider whether they're being looked after in the monastery. These are the qualities of a samana in daily life. We look after each other when we're sick, when we're in need, when we distribute requisites. A samana is always considering what's appropriate in a situation. Nowadays we're lucky because there's usually plenty of food, plenty of requisites for everyone. But still the mind can get fixated on things. You know, maybe there's plenty but we're still not quite getting what we want. And back to the mind of accumulation, the mind of a worldly person rather than a summoner. It can come up at any time to do with robes, food, kutis or different requisites that we might feel we need. We, we always have to be vigilant and bring up the perception of a samana. It's like they say when, when taking the food, you know, when maybe when we're a novice or an anagarika, we feel we're always at the end of the line. We never get quite the choice that those at the top of the line get. So maybe when we become a monk, after a few years, we're further up the line. Maybe we think, oh, now it's my time, my turn to get what I want. I'm at the top of the line, I'll just take exactly what I want. And Lumpur Chao said, that's a foolish way of thinking. If you're at the top of the line, then remember how it was when you were at the back of the line and sacrifice. Renounce your greed and consider those behind you and make sure they get enough. Your mind tends to go one of two ways. It either goes towards greed and accumulation or it goes to renunciation, compassion, kindness. We have to train. It's not that we have to be kind of superheroes and not take anything for ourselves. We just take enough for our bodily needs to keep ourselves going. Of course, sometimes we can practice in a more ascetic way, go the way of Venerable Mahakasapa, stay in a grot, renounce a kuti, eat just in our arms bowl, not accept any extra food in dishes or cups, just eat one meal a day and so on. There's always options periodically to improve or use ascetic practices, tudonga practices, to train ourselves. But even if we don't do that, we're already practicing renunciation. If you just follow the basic monastic form, the rules, the trainings, you take whatever kutis assigned to you, you eat the food, the drinks that are available. Already that is a form of an asceticism already. It's a form of renunciation already. Some want to go further. If we find that's helpful for your practice, well, it can be a valid way to practice. Others just 
take what's available and that's also okay. In the disciples of the Buddha there was Venerable Sivali who had a lot, Venerable Mahakasapa who always tried to take a little and live very frugally and ascetically. But they were both arahants, so clearly they trained in the same way, developed the qualities of a samana, but maybe their external lifestyle was slightly different. We all have our own characters, so even though we're developing these qualities of a samana, we also might have particular skills that we can develop, serve the community, help the community, and help ourselves. Different baramis, skills. Or maybe you don't feel you have any particular skills, where you can just develop the basic skills of a samana. Keep the patimoka, sila, learn to use a meditation object, reflect on the Dhamma with no great skills or any sort of notable personality traits that people comment on might just go by being very ordinary, even almost unnoticeable, anonymous in the Sangha. And you can become completely enlightened, just the same as somebody who maybe becomes a great Dhamma teacher or knows how to do building projects or can chant very well or has learnt the suttas. They're good as well. But there's room in the Sangha for every, every character, every personality. But the important thing, the thing that links us, the underlying principles, the principles of a Samana, we all have to be harmless. We all have to renounce. We all develop mindfulness. We all contemplate the Dhamma. On one level, we're all exactly the same. We all get old, we all get sick, we all have to face death. It's not what we want, but there's no way out. We have to bring our minds to deal with those simple truths of life skillfully. That's another way a samana can help the world. A samana faces illness, sickness, with mindfulness, with restraint, Many, many times in Thailand where you have a big sangha, not, not in one individual monastery, you know, many other monks in different monasteries, you, you get the opportunity to see gamatana bhikkhus or samanas dealing with different kinds of illness, sometimes very extreme illness like malaria or typhoid, cancer, painful, unpleasant illnesses. And often you see how impressive monks can be just being very patient, mindful with an illness. Not screaming, not complaining, not making a big fuss. And it's always very inspiring and useful for the lay community to see that, to be reminded of how a samana deals with the ordinary fact of illness. Or aging. Samanas tend to age gracefully. They're losing their eyesight, their hearing, their memory, their ability to use their limbs, muscles as they get older. But they tend to do it very gracefully. They don't make a fuss, they know their limits. 
they just adjust and manage whatever disabilities they're experiencing through aging or through illness. So again, a very useful reflection for the rest of society to see samanas when they're aging, when they're sick, or even facing death, facing death with patience, with mindfulness. So from start to finish, you could say the life of a samana is a gift, it's an offering back to the lay people who support us and also to fellow samanas. You know, we support we, each other and we make a gift of our practice to each other. So where you get one person practicing, well others will be encouraged to practice as well. By w watching or just living with samanas, you learn how to be a samana yourself. So I'll leave you with these uh, few reflections tonight and we can do our evening chanting. <laughs>